Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Okay, lots of stories to talk about this week, and I'm joined by Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hello. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Alex. So in past weeks, I've had a long discussion at the outset about some topic, but when I looked at the topics you guys had, I saw that there are tons of things to discuss, and so I'll just let you guys introduce the topics, and I'll weigh in on them. Don, let's start with you. What's your first story? This is the Church of Climate Scientology's Inquisition. So the totalitarian congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Now, another- now just to be clear, she, she doesn't yet identify as the totalitarian party or a member of the Church of Climate Scientology. No, I just want to be on the cutting edge of uh, of accurate description. Um, and another congresswoman, Shelley Pingree, wrote a letter to Google, Facebook, and Microsoft where they're criticizing them for sponsoring a Students for Liberty, Liberty Con conference because there was a session that, in their words, uh, was denying established science on climate change. And let me just read you two paragraphs from this letter because it gives you a flavor of what they what they sent they say we understand that sponsorship of an event or conference is a common occurrence and that these sponsorships do not automatically indicate that the company endorses the variety of political viewpoints that may be presented at these events however given the magnitude and urgency of the climate crisis that we are now facing we find it imperative to ensure that the climate related views espoused at liberty con do not reflect the values of your companies going forward As you are well aware, the spreading of misinformation can be dangerous to our society. Today's coordinated campaign to deny climate change or to put a positive spin on its effects is not unlike that of the tobacco companies which once sought to discredit their products linked to cancer. Their propaganda kept the nation from addressing a public health crisis for years, leading to many preventable deaths. We cannot afford to make the same mistake again with climate change. And so just a little context, what do we know about this denial of climate science? Well, it's that at Students for Liberty Conference, one of the attendees was this group, the CO2 Coalition, and they put on a talk amongst many other talks titled, Let's Talk About Not Talking. Should There Be No Debate That Industrial Carbon Dioxide Is Causing Climate Catastrophe? So that, in the words of these congresswomen, is denying established climate science. And, uh, I mean, I, I think you get a sense of my reaction. I don't even know where to start with this, except to say, like, I find this very disturbing. Well, one thing about when you hear the expression spreading of misinformation, so everyone who censors says that they are doing so to prevent the spread of misinformation. The people who send, who censor people don't say, oh, we're censoring so that we can prevent the spread of accurate information. They always say, yes, we're protecting you. We're protecting truth. And it can be different kinds of alleged truth in their minds, but whatever it is. So it could be of a religion or of a scientific establishment or of a political establishment. But they're all, that's always the justification. So this is where it's important to understand the role of government in a society and why our founding fathers very wisely relegated 
the government to protecting our rights, including our right to express ideas often, you know, which is the right to free speech. But the core of it is that we can conceive of and express ideas and then share them with other people. Now, when we do that, we can express false ideas and even damaging ideas. But the, the key is that unless we're free to express ideas, then people in the society have no chance of reaching the truth. And then they will get some completely warped version of reality imposed on them by different kinds of dictators. So I just want to make the point on principle that even if people are getting this issue totally wrong on climate, it's crucial that they be free to. And then the people who think that they're right about science should address them in open debate and make clear why their views are so correct. Now, often when you're dealing with censorship, the people engaging in censorship do not have a very good argument. That's why they're engaging in censorship. And this is certainly the phenomenon with the, cli the climate catastrophists. They have this very vague idea, oh yeah, fossil fuels cause climate change. And then they equate that with climate catastrophe and they just want to say, oh yeah, everybody agrees with us and everybody agrees with our policies, which now include outlawing non-fossil fuel forms of energy for at least electricity generation within the next decade and a half. So this is just, there are a bunch of different issues here, but the one that strikes me most is that this is a totalitarian or fascist policy and that whatever people believe on scientific issues, they should not believe in the suppression of discussion of scientific issues. The other thing as a procedural point that's very important to the protection of rights is that she is a member of the legislative branch. She is a congressman. I hope a short-lived congressman, but she's a congressman. So her job is to make laws that are consistent with individual rights. Now, there's no chance of her advocating laws that are consistent with individual rights because she doesn't believe in individual rights, but at least she has to – she's not supposed to dictate behavior. She's not supposed to enforce laws. So in the past, I've been very critical when attorneys general have tried to suppress speech, but at least their job is they're part of the executive branch, whereas her job is legislative. So the idea that she can just write with any kind of veiled threat to Facebook or Google or anyone else, um, I guess it was yeah, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft saying that, um, hey, I don't want you to express these views, that's a, a double violation. So, of course, we've talked a lot about what's wrong with her particular views, but the, the most specifically offensive thing to me and where I'm start that's why I'm starting with that here, is that she's just completely attacking the right to free speech. Yeah, I just want to underscore that because I think she or any defender might say, well, look, there's no threat there. It's just saying like, we want to know that you're on board with us on climate change. And I think there's two things that are really relevant. One is just her sheer position that this is coming from a lawmaker co-signed by another lawmaker that have the power to haul you in front of Congress and pass all sorts of laws. And then like the specific comparison to tobacco companies, which is, I mean, like they were, they were sued and, you know, these fossil fuel companies are under threat of being sued. So like, this is, I think, clearly an attempt to silence any even, you know, minor support uh, and indirect support 
of anybody who challenges them on climate. By the way, I should say something about the tobacco companies. So there are a couple of fallacies in the analogy. So one is that with the um, with the tobacco companies, well, this is a whole big issue, so I'll try to be brief on it. But one thing is that with the climate issue, the the essential harm being claimed uh, by people who are saying that there's a climate catastrophe problem, problem is something that the fossil fuel companies have no specific expertise on. It's a totally global scientific kind of phenomenon. The only thing they have expertise on is human adaptation and how energy can play a vital role in human adaptation or even stronger human mastery of climate, which is something I've talked a lot about. Um, so one thing, there's no issue of, oh, they're suppressing something. They had this secret information and they didn't disclose it. There's no even possibility of that. Whereas with tobacco companies, there could be the possibility of suppressing or in some way really being fraudulent about the nature of science and what had been discovered with their own tests. Whereas there's no comparable test that a fossil fuel company can do on the global climate. Uh, but the other thing is that tobacco companies have every right to engage in a debate on, in particular, the magnitude of negative consequences from smoking. And just watching how this debate occurs, I'm sure people are too afraid of smoking in certain ways, just because there's no respect for magnitude at all. There's no acknowledgement that, okay, this doesn't always cause cancer. There's, as far as I know, there's a strong correlation and thus probably some kind of significant causal relationship. But it's very important to know the extent of it and to know how many cigarettes does it take. For instance, I've heard that well, people who stop smoking once they're 40 don't have any additional cancer risk. These are the kinds of things that come out. These nuances come out. Or what's the danger, if any, of smoking a pipe? Like I, I've never actually smoked one cigarette or anything, so I don't. It's not a very personal issue for me, and I don't feel like developing the habit. But that is an issue that's important to understand in precision with precision so that people can make choices and it's it should be it's totally necessary for vested interests to weigh in if they think that they have an opinion they want others to hear and then people can discount their opinion um you know if they think that it's clearly being biased by certain factors but we need with all of with any issue of a threat you need a very precise discussion of it. And open debate is part of what gives you that precise discussion, which I think is a good segue actually to, Stefan, what I believe is your first topic, which is you have more on this issue of air pollution science, which has certain relationship to, um, to the science related to smoking because it deals with certain kinds of airborne particles and the question of, okay, and in what quantities are these things dangerous and to what degree? And that, that kind of precision is necessary. And as you've talked about before, that kind of precision has been missing in um, American laws, but certainly in German laws that are imposing a lot of hardships on drivers in the name of pseudoscience about air pollution. So what's, what's the latest there? Yeah. So my first topic is an, an update on a previous power hour. Uh, so, Pneumologist expert Dieter Köhler, who has gained some media attention in Germany because he questions the... What's a, what's a pneumologist? A pneumologist. Pneumology is sort of the science of, of lungs and breathing. Got it. Okay. Um, so and he gained some media attention in Germany because he questions the quote-unquote science 
behind the air pollution thresholds of safety, in particular was in the debate about bans of diesel and gasoline cars in Germany, which is now on the agenda. Um, so, and he uh, published a position paper laying out more details about the scientific case against these thresholds. And he got over a hundred colleagues uh, of the field uh, to sign this. They are all doctors and scientists who are working in, uh, uh, you know, pneumology and, and uh, uh, diseases related to the lung and, and respiratory systems. And so in this paper, uh, they lay out what we've been discussing uh, earlier as well. Uh, so for example, that the uh, scientific case is quite weak against nitrous oxides and uh, particulate matter um, pollution. Because for example, they are not, they are based on correlational studies, which means uh, that there is no clear causation uh, proven by, by the scientific papers underlying the thresholds. And uh, so they cannot actually quantify the harm. They're just uh, statistical calculations of potential death that are not that cannot re really be proven, and uh, there are no actual dead bodies that you can uh, count to actually test the hypothesis behind this. And there are also a bunch of confounding factors that is better explanations for uh, why there are, there's a higher mortality rate in a certain area with higher uh, degrees of air pollution or higher concentrations of uh, nitrous oxides or particulate matter, and. Um, so they laid out sort of what the scientific case for a proper threshold would be. And uh, so this has gained, again, some media attention, also some uh, very furious reactions by green politicians and advocates, as could, could be expected. And so my hope is that this will trigger a, a more in-depth debate of what really would be a good uh, scientific take on uh, the potential harm of air pollutants and what, you know, a good level of regulation would be. And, uh, yeah, so that's, so, so that's I'm, the update. I'm, I find this very interesting in a number of ways. One is that I'm surprised that he got so many colleagues to sign it because in the United States, it which I, I tend to have a view that the United States is better than Europe, and I, and I mean better by the standard of human flourishing and better by the standard of respecting individual rights, and thus the German laws about energy tend to be much worse than the American laws, and the thresholds that they're passing are more damaging, and yet it would be surprising to me, so it would be surprising to me in the US if we had laws as bad as Germany does, but it would be surprising to me if we had this many scientists stand up on the issue of air pollution, because it's, it's one of these issues. It's almost like the climate issue where you're just viewed as a denier or a believer. And thus it's hard to imagine a hundred American scientists coming out publicly and saying, okay, yes, certain quantities of air pollution or air emissions can be dangerous, but these quantities, there's no evidence are really endangering people. And thus it's harmful to have such a low threshold for air emissions because it's hurting people in these other ways. So, Stefan, do you have any ideas on on why it's do you, do you think I'm right that it's unlikely in America and maybe why is it in is that maybe the question is 
is there not some big price to pay that these scientists will have? Because it seems like in the U.S. there would be a huge price to pay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this this could be a career ending, you know, depending on it how how it plays out. So that's why I think so many did it because probably behind closed doors, more people agree with it and more experts agree with with the challenge uh, Kula put out. But um, so they are, I think, trying to come out in force so nobody can really like say, oh, there's scientific consensus and every, everyone outside this is just uh, a denier or something like that. I, I'm i not sure that America has um, less stringent standards. So in, in some of the concentrations uh, thresholds, I think uh, America is actually a trendsetter and the EPA is a trendsetter for other countries. I think what's what's very positive and, and what gives uh, some credibility to these experts and, and to the sort of outside the consensus side is that now that driving bans for diesel cars, relatively new diesel cars and gasoline cars in many big German cities are on the table, this really shows the damage. So usually... You know, the general public will put up with a lot of regulations if they don't see the direct harm. But know that this impact is so threatening to everyone. And, you know, uh, if you if you ban diesel cars in, in big cities like Cologne and Berlin and, and so on, that's really not only will it hit a lot of consumers, but this actually threatens the whole economy. Every, everything could become more expensive and this will do a lot of, of harm. And so I think this this is a, the threshold that is met, uh, you know, similar to the yellow vests in, in, in France, where people really get hurt. And, and so the damage of all these regulations really comes out and is visible to the general public. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I can see the analogy. Okay, Don, what is your next story? Yeah, so the Manhattan Institute published a study by Jonathan Lesser where he's arguing that the environmental and climate benefits of electric vehicles are wildly overstated and that the economic costs, particularly the burden on poor people, is underappreciated. And just a few highlights that I found really intriguing. So one is he finds that when you compare the amount of air pollution or air emissions created by new cars with the amount of air emissions that would be created by electric vehicles, which have to use electricity from the grid, his estimate is that actually widespread adoption of EVs would increase air pollution relative to gas-powered vehicles. And then for CO2, his, his finding is that the actual net reduction you'd get from CO2 emissions, it would be a little bit, but it'd only be about one half of 1% for the total US carbon emissions, which would have no climate impact and therefore no economic benefit. And on the other hand, when you look at the billions of dollars in EV subsidies, they're overwhelmingly benefit the wealthy. So if you look at the the people who are buying electric vehicles, it's mostly people who earn $100,000 or more with a significant minority of that being over $200,000. And what, what I find interesting about this is not exactly his analysis, which is plausible to me, but probably open to criticism. And certainly I haven't gone through it uh, you know, with a fine-tooth comb. But to me, the striking thing is just how seldom you see any kind of analysis of the cost and benefits of EVs. 
like how often do people actually try to quantify the impact on air quality or climate or the try to quantify the impact on electricity prices of having now all of our vehicles plugged into the grid or you know the cost of subsidies and infrastructure and, and, and identifying who bears those costs. And instead, it's just treated as this mystical belief that EVs are going to inevitably take over and that this will inevitably be a good positive thing. And I think like one thing that you can see whenever there's a lack of concern for the actual costs and benefits, but widespread enthusiasm for something like EVs, I think it's at least evidence or raises the question of, is this really like the the support for EVs, is this really about rationalizing bans on gas-powered vehicles, just as I think a lot of the enthusiasm for wind and solar is about rationalizing bans on reliable electricity? It's, hey, we're going to pass these restrictions on fossil fuels, we're going to oppose nuclear, but don't worry, there's a substitute. And so we're going to ban the best vehicles uh, for human beings, but don't worry, there's this, there's this substitute. And um, whereas if you're really concerned about human flourishing, I think you'd see way more of this kind of analysis. Another dynamic that strikes me here is the is how much people are willing to pay for status, particularly when they've been guilted in life. So I have a lot of kind of content that I want to talk about someday just about how different motivations affect people and in particular how big a motivation status is i think it's very it's a very under um undersighted motivation when we're talking about different behavior and often when people are described as motivated by money in a bad way it's often they're being motivated by status but there are all there are also all kinds of status motivations and things like why do people why do people participate in popular delusions over time, whether it's eugenics or I believe climate catastrophe? And there's all sorts of status related to that. Why don't more scientists like the ones uh, Stefan mentioned with the air pollution thing, why don't more scientists speak up? Well, the status in the society can be uh, geared so that it's difficult. Status is a really interesting kind of motivation. And what we find with environmental issues is that the modern environmental movement is very good at saying to people, your normal life, your default life is destroying the planet. It's You should feel guilty for everything you're doing, but we have a way for you to be a good person. And it's important that that way is always changing. It's always, it's not really evolving, but it's it's changing in a way that can lead to more and more demands. And part of that is that you you know you criticize climate deniers you criticize fossil fuel companies and then you can be a good person even if you're using just as as much fossil fuel energy if not more than everyone else you, you might talk later about a story about private jets it's there's just as long as you as long as you engage in this condemnation you're good or as long as you drive a prius you're good except then that's not good enough so then you have to drive a tesla or you have to put solar panels on your roof. And certainly you have to support whatever policies they say. And all of these things are what they're giving you is moral status as against the default of moral guilt. And then you can feel superior because you are doing the right thing versus the people who are doing the wrong thing. And part of what's so interesting about this is that there's nothing resembling scientific or rational thinking in terms of are your actions actually promoting some intelligible goal in some strategic way? It's just 
whatever the green movement says, we do. So if they say EVs, great. If they say solar and wind, great. And there, But there's not thought about how does this actually impact human flourishing in general, but then even the specific things that people talk about, like CO2 levels or other aspects of environmental quality. And this is a reason why people often describe the modern environmental movement as a religion. It has this quality of rituals, performing rituals without like a clear scientific justification, but that's tied a lot to the alleviation of guilt and the acquisition of status. Okay, Stefan, topic number two for you. Uh, So it's another topic uh, featuring Germany. Uh, because there's so much going on. So over the weekend, the Federal Commission on uh, Coal uh, published its final recommendation, and that is to phase out all of coal in Germany by the year 2038, so almost 20 years from now. Um, And so that's the recommendation, and the broader picture is that Germany aims at uh, being carbon neutral by mid-century, and uh, so the government will probably fail its milestone features in the year 2020, and uh, so they think that there will now be a more aggressive uh, schedule necessary to do that. So and the recommendation is to phase out all of, of coal power in Germany by 2038, and that is right now about 40% of power generation in the country. Um, and it comes on top of the nuclear phase-out, which was uh, recommended by a similar uh, commission in 2011 after the Fukushima uh, tsunami destroyed a bunch of uh, nuclear reactors in Japan. So by 2022, nuclear will be phased out, and by 2038, all of coal will be phased out in Germany. And what's remarkable is that actually a lot of green advocates were slightly disappointed because uh, this is so far into the future. So they were counting on a phase out by 2030, just 12 years into the future. Um, and that's and both uh, timelines are actually very absurdly short. You have to remember that a coal power plant, you know, if it's built today, it can deliver for 30, 40, 50 years reliable electricity. And so this is this is really cutting short the potential lifetime of uh, of, of power plants. And so there's now a now a debate, of course, about this, but it will likely get into a law or regulation. And so I think the key year will be actually 2022, because uh, after the nucle- the last nuclear reactor will have to be have to go offline and then aggressively more and more coal power plants will have to go offline. It's very questionable that uh, whether the grid will be stable enough at this point. Well, Stefan, how, like how, what is your natural gas situation in Germany? Cause I mean, that's basically the only reliable energy source that's left after those two. Yeah. So there's, there's obviously a lot of infrastructure for natural gas for home heating but so we are pretty much reliant on imports, uh, specifically from the Russian Federation, which might become a political problem the more we rely on that. But it's just the capacity 
in terms of power generation isn't even there yet. So that would be one of the cornerstones. But as the commission said or wrote in its in its final report, uh, renewable power is actually uh, sort of the the centerpiece of their strategy to phase out coal, which you know is probably not going to work. Well, I mean, because it's to, to what extent? To what extent do they address the major problems that that promoting wind and solar have already had in Germany? Well, they are not really addressing that. They are saying, uh, you know, similar things to what the administration has said before. So they they need to, uh, they recommended like hardening the infrastructure, building more power lines and, uh, you know, to move the excess power from solar and wind generation back and forth throughout the grid. And uh, then also they they acknowledge that wind and solar have uh, problems but they say, well, we'll build a little bit of natural gas and then things will work out well. And so it's it's vague and uh, somewhat evasive. I assume that they did not forecast all of the problems that now exist when they promoted the energy transition 10 plus years ago. Yeah, so, I mean... The ancient history of this starts somewhere in in 2000 when they started to subsidize wind and solar generation. And uh, so after the Fukushima uh, incident, it actually like took up pace. And no, they they did. So the the debate is about, you know, how quickly can we phase out fossil fuels and how, how quickly can we bring electric vehicles on the streets and, you know, increase wind and solar capacity, which like all of these things are sort of contradicting each other, because if you, you know, replace oil fuels with electric vehicle battery capacity, where you're not even starting with just replacing what's already there in terms of of electricity consumption, you have to multiply that, you know, many times over in order to satisfy the energy demand of, of electric vehicles. Yeah. Uh, well, this is definitely a case where Germany is worse than the U.S. Unfortunately, the U.S. has a a very bad history of emulating Germany, which is perverse in so many so many ways. I like having a a German who uh, who is very you know free market and pro individual and pro reason, so that we can uh, agree on many of the negative effects that 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 country has had on the world, but in part that, that, that are important that they correlate very strongly with its position of inter- intellectual leadership. So you have a force in the country in the world that's known as an intellectual leader and that has, that, that is leading, that tends to lead the world in a very anti-human direction historically in a you know collectivist and, and racist way and today in a in an anti-human way which is really as i call it human racist anti the human race because ultimately sacrificing us to the ideal of an unchanged planet now speaking of sacrifice don i think you said you also had a story about canada which is to talk about sacrifice yeah and i mean canada's i think really relevant to the us because it's sort of a it, on energy issues, they're typically a few years ahead of us in terms of 
anti-energy regulations. And so they're in an interesting situation right now because, I mean, they have unimaginable oil reserves, but the industry is actually suffering and to the point where it's been forced to sell its product for as little as 20% of the global price. And the major reason why is because they're so, able so, to produce- So just to be clear, this means they're, they're selling oil at 80% off. Like, right. That's, that's just, that's crazy. And this is the most valued commodity in the world. And so they're getting paid 20 cents on the dollar and their oil is- you know, relatively speaking, expensive to produce because it involves a lot of uh, advanced technology to get oil from what are called oil sands uh, or tar sands. So anyway, keep going. Yeah. And so, I mean, you'd wonder, well, like, how could that be? Why in the world would they be selling it so cheap? And the major reason is that they are not able to transport it. They're not able to get it to the international markets where it's the main way they sell it. And that's predominantly because, um, May, there's been major barriers to uh, the, uh, one thing distresses the three major pipelines, Trans Mountain Line, th- a thing called Line Three replacement, and then Keystone XL. And um, I mean, a majority of can- Canadians and close to ninety percent percent of uh, Albertans, which is the the province where most of these uh, most of the oil industry exists in Canada, they support the pipelines, but they've but these pipelines have been opposed by a very vocal and I mean, frankly, often unlawful minority who will just stop interfere with projects that have been approved by government. And I mean, one thing that I find striking about this whole situation is that I think it's tempting to hear like totally suicidal policies like the green new deal and think of them as almost impossible. Like people are not going to pass policies that are, that destructive. And I think that's true in the case where the, like Stefan was talking about before, where the suicide is very clear, right? A carbon tax means I'm going to be paying a greater tax for energy and I don't want to do that. But when it's less obvious, when it's just, oh, we're stopping this particular pipeline, you can get policies that can basically eviscerate a vital industry. Or if you look at other places in Europe, they don't even let these industries like like fracking get off the ground. And so I think one lesson from this that's not particularly helpful to Canadians at this point, but at least for the U.S., is that when we hear policies that are can seem almost outlandish, like the Green New Deal, which is, oh, we're just going to be 100% renewable in 15 years, I think you have to take them seriously and treat them seriously because they they do it is possible to go down a path that involves massive energy destruction or denial one thing i'm really interested in and haven't fully worked out not even close unfortunately is just what can be done to help the canadian debate because i'm not canadian but it's a nearby country i know a lot of good people there and whenever i go they rightly complain about what's how much of their country is being destroyed by these green forces and it's it's there 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 just needs to be a different kind of strategy and whatever whatever that you know whatever else that strategy consists of i definitely believe it needs to involve what i call arguing to 100 which means that that the pro energy side should be arguing that these pro that the pro energy policies that are being stopped 
are a means to doing good things. They're means to promoting Canadian progress, promoting Canadian flourishing, including having a good environment, and that the people who are opposing these policies are dramatically hurting Canadians and that they're not idealists. They're very destructive because they're they're willing to sacrifice the well-being of Canadians and, and for that matter, people around the world who could benefit from Canadian resources in the name of these, you know, in the name of a whole bunch of things, but which ultimately do not hold water. So uh, Canadian... Well, there's, oh yeah, go ahead. I mean, there's another angle I think is relevant here too, which is just the sheer injustice towards the industry. I mean, the Canadian oil industry is vital to that country and has done a lot for that country. And even if you just think about it in terms of taxes paid to support the government, and yet you have these provinces that benefit from Alberta and then treat them as if like they're villains. And so it's demanding stuff because of their virtue that they're able to provide because of their virtue of supplying the country and the world with energy. And then that, oh, we're just going to control you and restrict you and we're not going to care if you can't actually function like that it is the you know they're they're ignoring the damage that they're doing to Canada but particularly treating these people who are in effect the saviors of the country as villains i think that has to be exposed as well yeah and they should they should stand up with moral confidence all right stefan do you have another story you want to talk about this week uh, yeah, so a news update, the Ener uh, um, Energy Information Administration uh, has published its annual energy outlook. And so in its reference case, which is sort of the projection that they think is most likely to come close to the truth, uh, uh, projects the U.S. oil and gas abundance until 2040. So they, they are saying, they are projecting that in into the 2020s, uh, American oil and gas production will grow and then will stay at a very high level, at least over that time period. Uh, and overall, the United States is projected to become a net uh, energy exporter uh, around 2020. Um, and the natural gas prices will probably stay low. So that's a, I find this very good news for America and hopefully in the future for Germany, because we are going to need natural gas from, from America. Yeah, you mentioned before, we didn't talk much about this, but the dependence on Russia. Uh, and these these it's what's so interesting about energy and security is that people used to really, really care about energy security, particularly in the 70s and after the 70s, when we had a whole bunch of issues with Middle Eastern oil and where and just the phenomenon of, of Europe depending so heavily on Russia for gas. And yet today there's so little appreciation of that. But just imagine a world where Germany, where Russia can manipulate Germany based on gas. And one thing we see throughout history is that you can manipulate so much based on having access to energy ver by controlling people's energy supply, particularly in the winter, in a cold place like Germany or you know, even the summer with things like air conditioning. It's just, it's such a fundamental force that you really do not want any kind of anything resembling total control of that force by anyone who does not wish you well. So that that's just another angle of energy and human flourishing, where it's so important 
that we have access to energy from people who are at least mostly supporters of ours and who share the same values because it can be used as this unbelievable military or quasi-military weapon. Yeah. So just to add to that, like one of the major reasons why France went into the nuclear technology, so they are getting like 70, 75% of their power generation for nuclear, was that after World War II, they didn't want to depend on German coal. So they shielded themselves from sort of foreign influence, potentially bad influence, which was understandable after, after the experience of World War II, uh, you know, by getting into domestic reliable production with nuclear uh, technology. It was that important. I was just thinking more about the German situation because after the Fukushima uh, outcry, where once again, you have a, a nuclear quote unquote disaster that, well, in this case is a, is a nature disaster, but then nobody dies from the, an actual nuclear meltdown. And yet you have all of these reactions to stop using nuclear power. Now, in the case of Germany, they, you know, we only, there are only a few reliable sources of power and the, the three, I mean, really the the what the three big ones are nuclear, natural gas, and coal. Oil is very reliable, but it becomes expensive because it's so in demand for transportation. And then, okay, you can have wood, but that's very, very limited. And then you can have hydro if you have hydro capability, but usually people are maxing out already on their hydro capability. So really you have these three kinds of options. And it, it's one thing to go from nuclear to two options, particularly if you have a major coal industry. And what happened is Germany started building more coal plants to to account for the lack of nuclear, but now they're getting rid of two of the three reliable sources and the one that they have a lot of access risk on. So that's that's really scary that, and it's all based on, well, it's all at least rationalized by faith that the intermittent sources will somehow work and that that's just that's just a totally different thing just planning to rely on something that doesn't work anywhere at scale is just so bad and it's it's one reason why i forget if we've talked about this on the show but we've talked about it internally the the whole focus if people think that they have ways of making intermittent sources reliable their whole focus should be on demonstrating that in a significant way so somehow taking an industrial city of a million people or something like that and really showing, okay, we can power this on a hundred percent solar and wind or something very close to that. And then if you could really show that and then show that there, that, that what made it work there was transferable. So it wasn't just, oh, this was in Arizona and without significant heavy industry, but it was in a, it was in a place of a kind of normal climate with a lot of industrial activity. If you could show that, that would be a great sign because it would mean, hey, at, at least we have another reliable energy technology that we can use. But before you get that, when the technology is still very much in experimental stage everywhere, to mandate it or to plan to rely on it is really, really catastrophic. Don, did you have any more stories you wanted to cover this week? Yeah, there's one last one that uh, is worth a few words. So um, Davos World Economic Forum had their get-together in the Swiss Alps, 
and you know it brings together some of the most powerful people on the planet to just talk about global issues and uh in the lead up to that they issued their global risk report and this identified climate change as well as some other environment uh, environmental dangers as the biggest global risks humanity faces and this is ahead of terrorism biological warfare anything economic like a big focus of this of the forum is like we need to fight climate change and so the news noted that an estimated uh 1500 private jets which is an increase of 200 over last year were used to get leaders to and from davos and this was you know criticized by people as hypocrisy and in general, I don't think hypocrisy is all of that in, is all that interesting. I mean, usually when people focus on hypocrisy in a debate, it's sort of intellectual laziness because they can't defend their own one hundred. But in this case, I do think that it's it's revealing that I mean, the whole reason these leaders are using fossil fuels to go to a meeting that's in part about banning fossil fuels is because fossil fuels are so superior. It's that you're not going to fly in a wind powered airplane. And uh, it, their very actions are an admission that, that what they're trying to ban is and continues to be a vital necessity. Now, Alex, when we were talking about this before, you made the point that, like, I mean, they have an answer to why they're, you know, flying to this. And you, you might want to comment on that. Yeah, I think it might have even been in my debate with Bill McKibben. I know he said this. He at least said, he said this maybe there. He said it other places where he'll say, yeah, I'm a hypocrite. And he'll just happily as as happy as bill mckibben can be he'll happily say oh yeah you know i'm a hypocrite but what what is he how why is he able to do that well basically what he he's he's saying is well yes i'm using fossil fuels but as a means to prohibiting fossil fuels and that's a very important thing and what what it amounts to is that this economic forum which is yeah it's sort of about prohibiting fossil fuels, but it's about a whole, it's a, about a whole bunch of things that the people involved think are very important. They think that it is important to get together and to share their ideas and to have these different thought leaders talk about different challenges and to share their solutions and whatnot. And maybe it is important, but it's, it's an acknowledge, it, it, it's a, this is an acknowledgement that when you want to do a lot of the really important things in life require a lot of energy and you, you need it from the best source. And for certain use cases, namely those involving mobility, particularly flight, the fossil fuels or hydrocarbons, more technically, are the best way to do it. And to notice how people are so, they'll so easily view their own use of fossil fuels as important, but they don't really view it as important for people to use fossil fuels in their own lives. So people driving to see their family or flying to see their family or driving to their favorite activity or really being able to be comfortable in the winter or the summer, those aren't viewed as important. They're not viewed as the kind of higher cause that people at Davos get excited about and therefore justify their private jets to because look these are important people they've got limited time yeah of course they need to they've got security concerns of course they need to fly in private jets they're doing something really important they're important and i'm all in favor of that i i i wish i had a, a private jet that the but 
I believe my life is important too, but it, the, you need to have the perspective if you're going to be objective about importance that everybody's life should be important to them. And if you view your life as important and you recognize that fossil fuels are necessary for your own purposes, then you really need to appreciate that fossil fuels are often the best way for other people's purposes. And when those other people have much less in the way of means than you do, then it's particularly damaging to deprive them of their best options. Stefan, did you have any more topics you wanted to cover this week? Uh, yeah, I have one again on coal. And uh, so I, I call it uh, that reports on coal's death have been greatly exaggerated. And it specifically uh, is about China because China has been picking up uh, coal production and coal consumption uh, in 2018 over uh, 2017. And uh, so to, just to give some perspective on this, just the consumption increase that China featured over the last like two years is enough to wipe out any uh, retirements that Germany is aiming at for, you know, the year 2038. So just a little pick up in the uh, picking up in the uh, economic performance of China over a short period of time is much more important than anything like Germany can do on this. And so there are a lot of signs that this is a continuing trend in China. Uh, so just last year, it was revealed that uh, some significant capacity of coal is actually uh, in, under construction right now. And uh, so the economic uh, projections aren't that good for the near future, but long-term, it seems to be at least stable, if not picking up with coal consumption in China. And uh, yeah, so, and they are also financing a lot of coal projects uh, all over the world, including Africa and parts of Asia and so on. So my take on this is, one, it would be a good idea for the for the German coal industry to actually export some high quality American coal to these places in the near future. Like even if America switches to natural gas uh, by force, essentially, uh, but maybe also because of uh, better economics of natural gas, uh, it's still good to have American miners at work and the American coal industry benefit from, from what's happening in these developing countries. And, uh, yeah, so that's that's a trend in, in China. Okay, I think we covered just about eight stories today, which is definitely a record. I guess it goes a lot more quickly when I don't have a long opening segment. So I hope everybody enjoyed the different topics today, or at least some of them. Any final thoughts that either of you have? So my my uh, perspective on Germany is that it won't happen as advertised because it will be impossible to retire so much coal and so much reliable energy uh, until that date. So I'm not as worried as someone might be, but it's it will still be going to hurt. But as the pollution debate shows, if it hurts, there will be a debate and, and people will recognize the damage from this. I mean, my only thought is that, I, I mean, I just think when you're approaching the news stories, whether it's, you know, any of the things that we've covered you, you, and you're approaching it from a pro-human flourishing and pro-human freedom perspective, like the world just looks a lot different than when you are trapped in the context that we're actually 
like most people are reading the news in, which is just you're totally focused on uh, not the human need for energy, but like all of these catastrophes and then how we're being saved by people who are whose contribution is to ban the best form of energies and promise us, you know, a future that they can't prove and haven't delivered. Yeah. And one thing is, is, you know, you're talking about how it changes the way you look at the world. There's a huge contradiction between how people are supposed to look at the world as portrayed by the media and then how they experience the world, because the way people experience the world is mostly that the problem that they face is just that they want to in- improve their lives, increase the amount of opportunity they have, and they they want to live in a world that maximizes that opportunity, which gives them an opportunity to create a lot and an opportunity to consume a lot, including to have a lot of productivity and comfort made possible by energy. And climate is is a background issue. It's and it's an issue where if they have the opportunity, if they have the resources they're plenty able to deal with climate 99.999% of the time. And even when they're not, then you have things like insurance and other things that, that can protect you. So it's, it's a problem when the whole focus of the society is not on really maximizing opportunity and benefit, but on just, on just whatever we can do to serve this goal of not changing the climate. And unfortunately, all of the, the people who are who are claiming to be the leaders of this goal of not changing the climate, they're passing policies that will dramatically, dramatically restrict opportunity and that are already dramatically restricting people's opportunity when they don't realize it. So one, that's that's a lot of the reason why we have this show, because on this show, what we're trying to do is we're trying to identify energy policies that advance human flourishing, where that is the that is the priority, and we look at everything from that perspective, and we try to think as carefully as possible about the benefits and costs of different um, policies and technologies from the perspective of human flourishing. And we hope that you find this illuminating and that you use it and promote it as well. Okay, wrapping up, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email us. I'm at alex at industrialprogress.net. Don is at don at industrialprogress.net. And Stefan is stefan at industrialprogress.net. In addition to sharing the show with others, giving us a rating on iTunes, one great way you can help uh, promote the cause is by having one of us as a speaker at your event or by promoting us as a speaker, if you know of any high-level events that could use a really, really good energy speaker. So if you have any ideas about that or queries about that, Don is your man. You can email him at don at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we will be back with a lot of interesting topics, all from a human flourishing perspective. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.